This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Luke chapter 12, 49 to 59. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. I came to send fire on the earth. And I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two. And two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, they, there will be hot weather, and there it is, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why, even, as, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, Make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. It is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we would ask that you would truly give us understanding and insight by the power of your Spirit. And that as your word goes forth, we do pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray all these things in your, for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the last several weeks, we've been looking at various challenges to uh, Christian living from Luke chapter 12. That is, things that can be stumbling blocks for God's people in their journey of faith. As Jesus has called us to live our lives fully devoted to Him and in the pursuit of His glory, we've seen how fear, greed, anxiety, and a lack of spiritual preparation can all be hindrances to our pursuit of that goal. And so this morning, we come to the challenge of conflict. And in particular, how do we understand the conflict that we experience as God's people today in the world? In our passage this morning, we'll consider the the conflict between Jesus and the world that rejected Him and ultimately put Him to death the conflict between believers in Christ and the world, and the conflict between the world of sinful, fallen humanity 
and the God who created it and sent His only begotten Son to redeem it. See, if we fail to understand the truth of these conflicts, we'll be in danger of missing the great truth and the hope of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ through the Gospel. And so first we'll consider the conflict between Jesus and the world into which He came. In verse 49, Jesus declares, I came to send fire on the earth. Now throughout Scripture, fire is often used as a, as a picture of God's judgment. So for example, in the Old Testament, we know that the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone. And then even in the New Testament, we have the picture of the eternal fire of hell as a place for God's judgment of the wicked. And so Jesus here is identifying himself, not as just says that there was going to be this fire, but he's identifying himself as the one who is actually going to bring this fiery judgment upon this sinful world. Why is this this conflict between Jesus and the world that he wants to bring this judgment upon the world? Well, it can be traced back to our sin natures and the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 5 verse 12 says that just as, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's so because Adam was the father of of the human race, when he sinned, all those who came after him from uh, by ordinary generation would be cursed with the guilt of that first sin. And that is, we all are born sinners. We're born in rebellion against God because we are sons and daughters of Adam. And because God is most holy and just, Well, he must punish sin. And Jesus states here that a purpose of his coming was to carry out God's just judgment upon sin. You see, because Jesus is the Holy Son of God. And because he's the Holy Son of God, he's in conflict with the sin and the sinners of this world. And so he must judge sin with a fiery judgment. He will not tolerate it in his presence. But we may wonder, when did Jesus sit as judge, bringing fiery judgment during his earthly ministry? Well, he didn't. See, Jesus knew that one day he would sit as judge over all the earth, but now was not the time. And this is why he then adds, and how I wish it were already kindled. You see, He's the appointed judge, and and when He returns at the end of the age, He surely will sit in judgment over the earth. But this fire, the fire of this judgment, hasn't yet been lit. But at this point, it's clear that Jesus' anger was kindled against those who would profess His name and yet don't do what He commands, as we saw last time. His holy and righteous desire against such rebellion and against the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in particular has been greatly stirred. But His judgment, the fiery judgment that He came to bring, has not yet been unleashed. 
But there is one way in which we can say that the judgment of God did come with the first coming of Jesus. As Jesus came in in fulfillment of the gospel, preparations for the final judgment truly began. And we see this in response to to Jesus and his teaching. As he goes about uh, preaching and teaching, we know that those who had ears to hear and believed what he said, that they were set apart for eternal life. But those who heard with their ears but didn't hear, and who saw with their eyes but didn't see because of the hardness of their hearts, you see, these were being set apart for judgment. And in fact, Jesus will say that they've been condemned already. And so as the gospel goes forth, whether it was from the lips of Jesus or his apostles or uh, the pastors and teachers, evangelists and faithful witnesses among God's people today. As the gospel goes forth, the sheep are being separated from the goats in preparation for this coming fiery judgment. But before that final fiery judgment does come, something remarkable must happen. And indeed has happened. You see, the judge of all the earth himself, even Jesus Christ, who is going to bring this fiery judgment, well, he himself must endure judgment. Verse 50, Jesus says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. The baptism that Jesus is here referring to is His suffering and death on the cross. And Jesus likens this time of humiliation to baptism in its most literal sense, that is to immerse or submerge. And so Jesus will be immersed in in suffering to the point where death will completely cover over Him. But why must Jesus the perfectly righteous, holy Son of God, why must He suffer a baptism of misery and death? Well, He does so not for Himself or for His own sin, but He does so for us and for our sin. Friends, this is the essence of the Gospel. That while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ Jesus died for us. And because of His gracious love toward the undeserving, Jesus endured the wrath and curse of God's judgment to pay the penalty for our sins. He endured what we deserved. And although this was God's great gospel plan before the foundation of the world, the suffering and death of Christ was really clearly a result of this conflict that he had with the sinful world. And we see this in in Acts 4, where uh, Peter uh, proclaims, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so they all rose up against Jesus. Herod, Pilate, The Gentiles, the people of Israel, they all rose up because of this great conflict. Because the holiness of Christ clashed with the sinfulness of man. 
And in this cosmic battle of of good versus evil, initially it appeared as though evil was victorious as Jesus was put to death on the cross. But ultimately, the victory would belong to Christ as He rose again from the dead on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death once and for all. Brothers and sisters, if we misunderstand the conflict between Jesus and the guilty sinners of this world, then we misunderstand who Jesus is. That He is truly God, perfectly righteous, most holy and just, and that He came not only to redeem the lost, but to bring fiery judgment upon unrepentant sinners. Now this conflict between Jesus and the world ultimately spills over to us. To those who believe in His name for salvation. Because Jesus was in conflict with the world, those who follow after Him will also be in conflict conflict with the world. And we begin to see this in verse 51 where Jesus asks a question and then gives a, a most surprising answer. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all. But rather division or conflict. What? Is, Is this a misprint? No, it's not. Jesus came to bring division, not peace. Now you may be wondering, well, okay, how do we then reconcile this with other passages of Scripture, like, for example, uh, Isaiah 9-6, which is a, a great pro- prophecy about the birth of Christ, where the child who, was, who would be born of a virgin would be called Prince of Peace. Or after Jesus was born, the, the angels declared to the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So how do we reconcile these and other passages with what Jesus is saying here? Well, first we must understand that Jesus truly is the Prince of Peace who came to bring peace to sinful man. But the peace He came to bring wasn't a utopian world peace where all people and all nations live in harmony based on uh, secular ideals as some vainly try to accomplish today. No, the peace Jesus came to bring was peace and reconciliation between God and sinners. And in particular, those sinners who were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world according to the riches of His grace. Peace with God is only found through Jesus Christ. And so yes, Jesus did come to bring peace. But with this particular redemptive peace, there also comes division, strife, and conflict. Now how is this possible? How is it that Jesus brings both peace and division at the same time? What happens through the proclamation of the gospel. You see, when the light of the gospel is declared, some will cling to that light and receive a peace that surpasses all understanding. But others 
when they hear the light of the gospel proclaimed, they'll hide from the light. And they'll continue to cling to their sin. And they'll become hostile toward the light. And they'll become hostile hostile toward those who walk in the light. Jesus warned His disciples that the consequences of following Him could be severe in a world that is in rebellion against God. In John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. And if you were hated, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we can expect conflict. We can expect that the world will hate us, will persecute us, and even put us to death, even as it did our Savior. Beloved of God, following Christ comes at a great cost. Now this doesn't mean that we should walk around with a chip on our shoulder and not seek peace with our unbelieving neighbors. Not at all. Remember the Apostle Paul's charge in Romans 12 where he says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so we should love our neighbors. We should love our neighbors as a witness to them and, and seek peace as much as, poss- as much as depends on us. But obviously, it doesn't fully depend on us. And so you can expect that even when you seek peace and try to be nice and loving toward your neighbors... Well, they may not always respond in kind. But as Jesus goes on to illustrate this point in verse 52 and 53, He now makes it very personal. You see, the conflict that believers have with the world isn't just out there among the seven billion strangers in the world. This conflict can and often does show itself even in our closest and most intimate relationships with those even within our own families. In these two verses, Jesus warns about how the gospel will divide families. Three against two, children against parents, siblings against siblings, couples against in-laws and extended family members. And it can even appear in the most intimate of relationships the one flesh union between husband and wife. See, the truth of the gospel divides light from darkness. And if you truly profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, sooner or later, your loyalty to Christ and the gospel will become a point of conflict between you and any unbelieving family members that you have. Now, some of you may have already experienced this in your lives or even may be experiencing it even now. Sometimes the conflicts may be minor situations where you just agree to disagree so you don't talk about religion. But other times, these conflicts can be so severe and hostile that they bring an end to the relationship being persecuted and rejected even by those of your own family because of your faith is a reality that we must acknowledge is possible. 
It's another way in which we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who was rejected and suffered death at the hands of His own people. But again, just because conflicts may arise in our families because of our faith, doesn't mean we should be bitter, angry, or spiteful in return. No, we must continue to love them. We, we must continue to seek to live at peace with them. We must continue to do all we can do to be a positive blessing and a witness to them. And because we will be a witness to them of the gospel, and it just might turn their hearts to Christ. And speaking of a conflict in that intimate relationship of, of marriage between a husband and a wife, the Apostle Paul gives this great encouragement and certainly can apply to other family relationships. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16, he says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And here he's urging that just because you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, you don't just abandon the marriage. But that you can be a witness in that. And so it's important that we understand this conflict between believers and the unbelieving world. And again, if we don't understand it, well then we can become disillusioned when troubles come our way, when these uh, relationships that we've had for a long time suddenly fall apart and we, we begin to think to ourselves, well, this isn't what I signed up for. I mean, I love my parents or I love my children or my uh, uh, wife, my aunt and uncle, whoever it might be. No, we must understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, conflict will come. Whether it's rejection by those closest to us, whether it's persecution, hostilities, or even death, the hands of those who remain hardened in their sin. We must be ready and aware that this conflict will come. Well, the final conflict we must understand is the antagonism of the world against God. And again, ultimately it's because of the sin nature of mankind that such conflicts exist. But how is it that when the glorious hope of the gospel, that is the forgiveness of sins, peace and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, how is it that when this gospel is proclaimed, that this antagonism not only remains, but as we've seen, can even increase? Why does much of the world still reject Christ. Well, Jesus reveals a few clear uh, clues to these questions. First in verse 54 and 50 through 56, he uses an illustration to show that those who continuously reject the gospel are so hardened in their sin that they're blind to the spiritual truth of the gospel. And how Jesus makes this transition from speaking to the disciples to now He's speaking to the crowds in general. And so what He says, He's saying to further condemn those who would reject Him. And His illustration is this. Basically the people, says you can easily determine the weather by the various signs in the sky. And so if a cloud arises in the west, well then they, they would know that rain was coming. And indeed that was the case because to the west of 
Israel was the Mediter- Mediterranean Sea, and, and all the storm systems would, would come across uh, the sea uh, as they went inland. And then if the wind started blowing from the south, well, they knew, okay, it's going to be, it's going to get hot. Because what was to the south of Israel? Well, it was the hot desert of Arabia and northern Africa. And so it's kind of similar to our own attempts when we think of uh, a red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. And red sky in morn is shepherd's warn. We can think, okay, well, it's going to be a nice day or it's going to be a bad day. But the point that Jesus is making here with all this, this illustration, is that he's saying, look, you're keenly aware of the signs that appear in the sky to determine the weather. And yet here Jesus has come, doing miraculous signs and wonders. He's been teaching and preaching with such extraordinary authority. And yet they can't see that these are signs Declaring him to be the only begotten Son of God. And he calls them hypocrites because they seen with their own eyes the evidence that he's given. It's, it's unmistakable. And yet they still don't believe. They don't believe because they're spiritually blind to the truth. The Apostle Paul declares in second first Corinthians two. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. See, if the Spirit of of God isn't at work in a person, reviving their hearts through new life and giving them wisdom and understanding to hear and obey the gospel, well, then they're not going to respond, no matter how often they hear the gospel preach. And for those in Jesus' day, they weren't going to believe no matter how many miracles they saw Him perform. So they can determine what the weather is going to be like. But they can't determine the truth that will set them free from eternal judgment. And so they're blind to this truth. Secondly, the antagonism between the world and God is increased not only because they're blind to the truth revealed to them through the the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also don't even understand the condition of their own hearts. Verse 57, Jesus says, Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? They can't judge what's right. And it's not just because they're unable to because sin holds them back. But they won't judge what's right because they don't want to judge what's right. This is the effect that the sin nature has in our lives. It renders us not only unable to turn and repent of our sins, but it also makes us unwilling to do so. See, we can't save ourselves, and we won't save ourselves. We have no desire to save ourselves. Because sinful man is blind to his own condition. He thinks that everything is okay. He has so suppressed the truth of God and exchanged it for a lie, that he's oblivious to the fact that his sin has condemned him to death. This is how much of the world lives their lives. 
without any regard to God or His law, living according to their own standards. Now, most certainly uh, acknowledge that that they're not perfect, but they falsely believe that they can obtain a true sense of happiness and fulfillment and salvation through their own good works. Such blindness to their own sinful condition is it's very dangerous because it keeps people from seeing their need for a savior. Right? If if I'm if I have this sense where I'm doing all right on my own, well then why do I need a savior? And if I'm basically a good person who has never robbed a bank and, and never killed someone, well again, why do I need a savior? But then when they're confronted with the truth of the gospel, what's their response? They become defensive and upset and even angry because someone says that they're a sinner in need of salvation. They're offended when they're told their own works are nothing but worthless, filthy rags. And so they then reject the truth as not applying to them. Whereas oppressive religious dogma. Because they can't discern their own hearts. They're in great danger. Well, Jesus closes this section with a challenging parable in verse 58 and 59 that, on the one hand, gives some very practical advice. So if you have uh, offended someone or if you owe someone uh, money, as the case is here, the best thing Jesus says for you to do is to make reconciliation with them a priority and, and pay them, pay them back so they don't take you to court. Because not only will the court proceedings be costly, but if you are truly found guilty and that you do owe this person someone, well then you're going to be greatly penalized to the point where you're going to lose everything, including possibly your freedom. Of course, Jesus makes this more dramatic when he says, you won't get out of there until you have paid the very last mite or the very last penny. In other words... You're never going to get out because you'll be thrown in debtor's prison where you're not going to be able to work and earn the money to pay off your debt. And so it's better then to, to make settlement out of court and spare yourself all this trouble. So that's the little parable. But friends, Jesus isn't primarily concerned here with paying your earthly debts. See, this parable has an important spiritual truth. See, mankind is the offender in conflict with his creator because of sin. And Jesus Christ is the one who sits as judge on the final day of judgment. And there is a huge debt owed to God because all of mankind has transgressed his holy law. But mankind has a problem. Because of his natural enmity and hatred toward God, Because in his sinfulness, he's in conflict with God. He's both unable and unwilling to pay off that debt. Now, such a sinner appears before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment with no covering for his sin. Well, he'll be judged severely and ultimately cast into eternal flames of hell where he'll never be able to get out. 
And so this is what Jesus is warning with this parable. Now, friends, I want you to note that between verse 57 and verses 58 and 59, there's an important subtle shift that Jesus makes in how he addresses the crowd with this truth. In verse 57, Jesus speaks to the crowd collectively, saying, you, plural, or y'all. But then in verse 58 and 59, he is very pointedly directing this challenge to each and every individual. Even to those of us here today. You. Singular. This is your condition outside of Christ. You're an enemy of God, unwilling and unable to pay the debt that you owe to God because of your sin. What will you do then when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, know this. that At that time, it will be too late to plead for mercy and grace. And so the call of Jesus here to those who were listening to him and even to those of us here today is is don't wait until the last great court date because that's going to be too late. Reconcile with God today. Humble yourselves now before Christ and seek his grace and mercy for the forgiveness of your sins. Let today be the day of your salvation. Otherwise, you'll remain in conflict with the righteous judge of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, if we misunderstand our conflict with God in our natural sinful state, that we're born enemies of God because of our sin, well, we're going to miss the glory of the gospel and the great hope of the gospel. That out of God's abundant mercy, grace, and love toward undeserving sinners, such as we are, that He sent His own perfect beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the judgment that only we deserve so that we might have true peace with Him and even with one another. And so set your hearts then on this amazing truth And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will truly overwhelm you to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you even for the pointedness of your word calling us to even examine ourselves. Are we at peace with you? Is our faith and our hope and our comfort in Jesus Christ alone? Are we trusting in our works and our own righteousness? Maybe some may think, well, I don't even need this. We pray, Lord, that their hearts would be softened. That they would no longer believe that lie. But that each one of us would see our need for your grace and your mercy. 
and the salvation which you have provided through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would truly apply that to us so that we can be free from this conflict even though we still will face the conflict of the world that hates you and will hate us, that hates the light. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for those conflicts that we face every day as we seek to walk faithfully in the steps of our Savior. And so we ask, Father, that you would impress these great truths upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.